Hello and welcome to part two of Pod Like a Whole presents a space podity. In last week's episode, we gave you part one of our scary monsters discussion, and now we're going to finish it out with part two. Um, there's no line. Steve got very excited about talking about Ashes to Ashes, uh, where I believe that conversation for that one track almost took 45 minutes. We were very excited about talking about this album, and we wanted to give this into, I don't know, two-course meals, if you will, rather than have you just gorge and get the old t-shirt of eating the old 97-er from the great outdoors. So we didn't want to leave anyone queasy of hearing our voices for almost four hours, so we decided, you know, let's give them a week break. So that's what we did. So without really... uh, any hesitation let's just get right into our talk where we'll pick up right where we left off and we're going to talk about fashion that was a very unfashionable way for me to go about that which brings us to our next track fashion So fashion, uh, one of the jokes that I made uh, when we were preparing for this episode was Ashes to Ashes was the greatest music video. Hold on. Fashion video came out and uh, not only did it uh, up the ante in how to make a music video, um, it uh, it it uh, definitely doubled down on, on that promise. Um, so fashion. Um, it's right there in the title, folks. The song is about fashion. Um, and I think it, uh, it's kind of a satirical take on what we're seeing there in the fashion industry of it being, I mean, there's no surprise the fashion industry is completely built around, uh, the superficialness of, of it all. Um, it's big and it's bland, full of tension and fear, uh, as as he said, um, I like this song. Uh, I've always liked this song because it's one of those songs that could be potentially his version of Starfuckers on this album, uh, where it's pretty tongue in cheek. Um, Bowie doesn't really himself shy away from being fashionable. And 
I think he was just trying to uh, deliver some commentary around that. I, I mean, yeah, he was. I I, I remember a couple. I, in my head, I always linked Bowie to fashion, and it wasn't just because he he had his own style. It was. I remember VH1 Fashion Awards. He performed, and I was already into him. I, it was. I think it was the year after I saw him in concert, like '96. I watched that. Obviously, he was in the movie Zoolander. Um, so I, I I think he's been tied close to, and then he married a, a you know a supermodel. So I think he was t- tied close to it. I mean, <laughs> he made an entire album of catwalk themes. Uh, um, yeah, as we discussed yeah, yeah, in our last yeah. proper episode. Absolutely. I don't think it's just fashion, though. I think it is. It is fashionable, and I think he he does make a lot of digs on the mu- music industry in this in this song as well. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, uh, what does he say here? Um, there's a brand new dance that I don't know its name that people from bad homes do again and again. And I think he really is talking about how most good art starts in the inner city or starts in, you know, starts from some sort of, uh, have nots situation and then gets co-opted and you know is told you're told that it's fashionable for a while until it's got no life left in it whatsoever um and and i think the whole song really is just an indictment on um uh basically co-opting a co-opting a real art form and sucking the life out of it and uh and i think and that's why i think he's making a few digs to gary newman he'll make more digs in another song um uh but he'll make some 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 dig he makes a, a few digs to to him and new music new music styles in this uh but i think yeah i think it is just the concept of fashion in general and the the fickleness of the public and the uh the uh, the negative side to chasing fashions instead of creating them so i mean to that point i think uh 1980 was the height of when new wave music was really starting to get off the ground and uh, part of new wave music is uh, certainly the fashion uh, from the from the artists and the bands that were uh, part of that new wave. Um, what do you think about the beep beeps? I've always been entertained by the <laughs> "We Are the Goon Squad" and "We're Coming to Town." Beep yeah. beep. We are uh, the Goon Squad. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. It's it's a little, there's a little, uh, the goon squad was, it was asked if he was like making another song about fascism and he really wasn't, but it was like a connection to fat, fat, to, to being zombies for fashion and fascism, I guess, you know, like, you know, essentially just, you know, following orders, um, and, and trying to make everybody the same. Um, that's what he was doing there. And I, I, I enjoy that part. I don't know what the beep beep means, except actually I have no idea what the beep beep means. I've been thinking about that. I'm fine with it. Yeah. I think think it's, I think it's it's great. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me some of the disco stuff from the seventies. Um, like that song, bad girls, bad girls, toot, toot. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or just like the sense that like, we're all like, these people are all basically cars stuck in traffic. Like that's kind of right. what the beep beep makes me think of, as essentially. Um, uh, beep beep, Richie. <laughs> that's right. There you go. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's got kind of a golden years. Um, yeah. 
kind of. But you know what separates it? it from the funk from Golden Years is uh, certainly Robert Fripp's. Ooh. Robert Fripp is. <laughs> oh man, he fucking he he br- he brings he brings it on this track, man. He just he doesn't uh, no no to take it back to Breaking Bad. There are no half measures when it comes to Robert Fripp. That guy is fucking wild. Um, and, and and yeah, he does. He he just when you're not expecting it on this song, he sends up like these sonic walls of fucking uh, incredible yeah. robot strumming. It's insane. Um, have you guys ever watched? There's not as many videos of him in the studio as I would like. There's definitely not any videos really of him in the studio for this album. Have either of you watched videos of him playing period? Um, just a few things from him doing King Crimson stuff live. Uh, I, that one clip that is available on some of the streaming services when they were performing in like, I think 2009 where they all look like old men and just sitting on stools. So mm-hmm. definitely not a whole lot of energy uh, coming from Robert Fripp. He's even got like two big studio cans as he's sitting on stage playing the guitar. So I would like to see him in his heyday to see if maybe he's always performed that way. I think that's the thing. I think he's always been that way. Yeah. As far as back as I could see it, he basically, he sits there and he's not a rock star by any means. He's a, whatever he is, musician and technical. He's super yeah, and technical. He might sit musician. there completely still, but his hands are still going insanely wild. And uh, I imagine it might've been like that uh, in the studio for a song like this, but it's kind of comical when you think of a track like this, which is a pretty danceable track, tapping your foot to this track. I can imagine people dancing to this track. And then Robert Fripp comes in with his fucking crazy Robert Frippage. Uh, it is something. Yeah. Um, uh, the band Blur has a song called London Loves. And Graham Coxon really wanted to do f- fashion Fripp. Mm. He really wanted to just make that that song uh, Fripp on fashion. And uh, it was a ri- the song was originally called Fripp, yeah. and then they changed the title. That's great. Well, yeah. I look forward to our King Crimson special, which uh, that's not a threat. That's a promise, listeners. Um, one thing about this track that I I um I mentioned before, I find that this track is kind of a sequel to Fame in a way. Um, it just might be because fame's a commentary on what it's like to be famous. And this is a commentary in fashion. Uh, I also think they they were packaged together as a single one to, at oh, one time La- later, later, later in the decade. Yeah. Speaking of which we didn't talk about that. Did we talk about how ashes to ashes was packaged as a single with space oddity? The re-recording of space oddity, I believe. Yeah. No, I think it was the old one, wasn't it? They actually recorded them. Nope, he re, he re, yeah, he re-recorded it. Yeah, no, we, no, we talked about that re-recording, which we didn't really talk about. We talked that it exists. We didn't talk about how it sounds. Is actually way off topic, but we might as well. I actually prefer that re-recording to the original, believe it or not. Uh, I think his vocals are much stronger than they are in 1969. But no, there's a, there's a single where it's cross, it cross-fades into Ashes to Ashes. Um, mm. Anyhow, fame and fashion, apparently. I don't think they cross-faded to each other, but they are of a piece. Uh, right. And also, fashion, and there's a lot of parts in this album that sound very avant-garde to me. I think fashion could be a Talking Heads song, and uh, I think the influence of Talking Heads pops up on this album in a few spots. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, this was the yeah. second single um, after Ashes to Ashes, uh, the music video was directed by the same uh, director that did Ashes to Ashes, David Mallet. 
Um, he shot the video in a famous nightclub owned by his friend Robert Boykin uh, called Hurrah. Um, and in that video, we see Carlos Alomar, uh, G.E. Smith, um, uh, and a few others. The Dennis Davis is not playing uh, the drums in the video. It's uh, actually a guitar player named Steve Love. Um, and uh, Tony Visconti's wife um, also appears. She wasn't married to Tony at the time. Uh, May Pang, she was in the video. And one of the MTV's first VJs was also in the music video, Alan Hunter. Um, but yeah, I mean, the music video is, uh, it's, it's nonsense, but it's a good form of nonsense. It's not the same as what you would get from, uh, from an artistic standpoint from ashes to ashes. It's more straightforward of being just in a nightclub playing in front of some people. Um, but I really think it's funny. It's great. It's really good. Yeah. I feel like there is like old sheets hanging over the walls in it too. Am I wrong about that? Like, I feel like it's, yeah, very, it's sparse. very sparse. You would think that they blew all like, of their yeah. promotional budget on ashes to ashes. And they're like, guys, we've got to make one more video on this. And <laughs> like, well, you only have $10 left. Perfect. I'll call my buddy. <laughs> yeah. Now they, they do one yeah, thing in that video, which is fair. a trope I love where they line all of them up at an angle from like shortest to tallest. And they're all kind of strutting at the same time and looking at the, the camera. It's a, uh, it's preposterous. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. look like they're having fun in it. They know it's stupid too. Oh yeah. So fashion is a song I do not think about often, but when I hear it, I love it. I think it's a great, it's a great pop song. So that's my, that's my, my final say. I'm very unanimous on that one. So we'll go on to the next one, which is teenage wildlife. Everybody settle in. Um, uh-huh. 
So that was Teenage Wildlife. And uh, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to keep anybody waiting in this. You might be, oh, Steve, you're just, you know, do you even know what words mean, Steve? Yes, I know what they mean. This is definitely in my top five songs of all time. Um, I would probably concur with you on that. I don't know if all time, but definitely in David Bowie's catalog, I would definitely yes. say it's, it's way up there. This is my favorite song off the record. This is my favorite song off the record. It probably is my favorite David Bowie song. And uh, I could listen to this song on repeat for an entire week. Uh, it's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not exaggerating, guys. <laughs> Look at you two are so cute. It's a favorite, you're, you're, yeah, same favorite song on this album. Uh, I like the song quite a bit. It's not my favorite, but I do like the song. Well, well with that, Eric, have that we, sounds Have we two, got to your favorite more. song yet, Eric? Or... Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You know you okay. have. You have. Was it Absolutely. Scary Monsters? Yeah. Uh I thought it was. I go back and forth between that and, and Ashes to Ashes. Gotcha. Yeah, Ashes to Ashes also hits a a an emotional spot for me, but not like this. But Eric, since you're the uh, detractor, you start. I'm not a detractor, it's a great song. I, I know you it's are, a great but song. You know, we're we're yeah. we're we're yeah. over here and we're at a the the we're we we've decided that we're off to see Bruce Springsteen, and you're telling us that in actuality we're seeing uh, uh, Brian Adams. So no, you tell us. Okay, okay, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm kidding. Okay, okay. I'm so no, we'll start no us, it's a great start it, us off. First of all, all right. first of all, I'm not surprised. Like this is a straight up rock song without any bells and whistles, uh, and that I'm not saying I'm not saying there's no flourishes, but I'm just saying it's the most straight up rock song on the album, and it's. It's it's wonderful. There's razor sharp guitar licks. Um, it is a diss track. It is like as we alluded to last song. It is the it is the uh, the rest of the diss track on the new wave musicians, especially Gary Newman. It, it is, but it, at the uh, same time, I think it's a little bit more than a diss track. It's a little bit more self aware than that. It's not like he sat down and he's like, "I'm going to put Gary Newman in his place." But I'll, I'll I'll get to my point in a second. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll I'll let you do that. Um, it's so clever though. It's some of his best lyrics. And, and even though it's a little petty at times, it is, it is hilarious and, and very clever. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's got so many movements to it, which I know Steve's going to get to. Um, and, uh, but it is very, it is a very straight up rock song, um, with a lot of hidden gems if you listen for them. Um, so, uh, what, uh, what nobody should do, which I may have done the first few times I listened to it was uh, not pay close enough attention because it is, it is a very good track. Well, you, you continued to almost infuriate and lose me when you were saying it was just a straight up rock song, but then you did point out that it has some hidden gems and it does, but I don't think they're that hidden, but um, <laughs> okay. while I, uh, look at my dissertation here. I'm still cleaning it up. Uh, Mark, how do you feel about this song? Um, I mean, I, I the song is so great uh, musically. I, I love how the the beginning just starts with that um, lead guitar again from Robert Fripp. Uh, Chuck Hammer is really uh, putting some little textures with the guitar synth. Um, 
at times I almost think that this is almost not just a diss track, but it, if if David Bowie was to create his own Born to Run, um, it would sound something like this. Well, you've got uh, our friend uh, Ray Britton. Roy Britton. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, right next door doing you know stuff with the E Street Band. Right. So his Americana uh, pianos definitely play into that. Yeah. Um, I, I never knew that this was a, uh, a diss track, the whole, how he sings teenage wildlife. Um, it reminded me of that who song, which I'm not a huge fan of the who, um, which, uh, coincidentally, obviously Pete Townsend's on a later track on this record. Um, but that song, Baba O'Reilly, you know, Teenage Wasteland, and then we got Teenage Wildlife. For whatever reason, those two songs always kind of ring in my ears in the sense of them trying to paint the same sort of picture. This being the um, uh, kind of a different take on that. But originally, the song was supposed to be called It Happens Every Day. And instead of him singing Teenage Wildlife, uh, not another Teenage Wildlife uh you know, t- uh, Tony Visconti said that he would sing It Happens Every Day. And I, I'm trying to like run that melody through my head and it just doesn't seem to track. Um, and another what's thing. Inter- what, what's interesting about that is that, like you said, before I scrutinize the lyrics, it sounds much more romantic than it really might intend to. Same. Yeah. That's what I think what yeah. I was trying to say. Yeah. But it still it still comes across that uh, that sense of longing I still feel because of the way it sounds. Yeah. Right. It, 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 uh, it, it, there, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it's intentional, especially on Fripp's, uh, guitar licks, but they are, um, they're retooling heroes a little yeah. bit yeah, in feel and, 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 in, uh, in, in, in that riff, well, that melody, but, but, but definitely it's, the it's same wonderful. type of guitar tone. They're cousins. As we've said, I think they're, they're cousins to each other. And also, as far as my uh, personal uh, 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 jewel box of songs I love goes, I throw this one in there with Heroes and we're in this together. But anyhow. And of course, Zeros. <laughs> oh, yeah. From uh, <laughs> yeah. Bowie's number one album, was, Never Let Me Down. Yeah. Two demerits. Um, Two demerits, Eric. Two. <laughs> Uh, anyways, um, a couple just just standout lyrics for me. Uh, wait, well, hold, on, wait, hold on, okay. hold on, hold on. Hold on, you've brought out the beast in me tonight because of uh, uh you're not in lockstep. Um, my my, my behavior, yeah, it's no, been really bad. Tonight. I'm just kidding. Uh, your behavior is just <laughs> fine. But Mark, you, you still were going. Oh, um, I mean, then when you kind of talk about, uh, you know him really trying to call it Gary Newman and he doesn't specifically call it Gary Newman. Um, but he does, uh, apparently Gary Newman, uh, said that it just seems really childish. He told uh, a magazine Q magazine when he did that, I couldn't have given a fuck about him. Um, and that would kind of sting a little bit because apparently David Bowie was not a fan of Gary Newman's work. Uh, and Gary Newman, this was someone who grew up idolizing, you know, uh, David Bowie. And that would kind of sting a little bit to have your uh, idol basically say, eh, I don't really like what you're doing. And why don't you go ahead and just fuck right the hell off? Um, yeah, uh, uh, there's uh, a there's a quote about that exactly that I have here. Is it about the um, Christmas special? <laughs> oh, no, no. But 
But he, uh, uh, Bowie said to, you know, around this time was what Newman did, he did excellently, but in repetition. It's the same information coming over and over again. And once you've heard one piece, it's that false idea of high tech society and all uh, which is doesn't exist. I don't think we're anywhere near that sort of society. It's an enormous myth that's been perpetuated, unfortunately, I guess, by readings of what I've done in that rock area, at least. Um, yeah, and in the consumer and, televi- uh, and television has an awful answer for this fabrication of the computer world myth. I don't know. Anyways, he's basically just saying Newman's doing the same stuff all over again. Well, I found I, I found a, 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 a clip from uh, The Independent. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Jiminy, The Guardian, the newspaper, from 2003, and it was right around when uh, Newman was getting. He was he was Newman was in the middle of his uh, electro-industrial phase, but still going on, still going strong. Yeah, uh, dimin- <laughs> uh, You know, uh, I wouldn't say diminishing returns. I'd say uh, to various degrees of success. But uh, that's fair. The direct, direct uh, the quote here. Newman bristles at the mention of Bowie, who once had him thrown off the set of Kenny Everett's TV Christmas special. Newman, oh. Had, oh. <laughs> Newman had already filmed his song for the program and was hanging around to see Bowie film his. Before then, I thought he was a god. I used to get into fights at school protecting his name. Then all of a sudden, this bloke I'd adored for years was throwing me out of a building because he hated me so much. It really upset me at the time, especially when I thought of how many thumps I'd taken for him. I can only imagine he was going through an insecure patch. At the time, I was outselling him about four to one. Um, when I read that, I do it in my Stephen Toast voice in my brain. But uh, sure, yeah, apparently he got kicked off of a Christmas special. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what a tangled web! But I mean, that, but that gets us to like uh, when I brought up earlier a couple songs back was that there's this this scene of uh in the mid 70s there was kids that started they started having bowie nights where you would just play bowie records and then these bowie nights turned into dressing up like david bowie and then they turned into acting like david bowie and then they turned into these kids making new bands that were kind of aping david bowie robert smith uh boy george and gary newman and this song is all about this avant-garde scene he started and him reacting to it um, I think it, I think it's great. I, I think it, yeah, it kind of could be a diss track, but also, I mean, I couldn't imagine, I mean, even being a dad and looking at how my kid apes shit I do. And sometimes I <laughs> wonder, you know, um, my God, I've influenced this little creature to act like me. Imagine having legions of fucking, uh, Londonites doing the same thing. It would, uh, it would be just bizarre to try to, to reckon with, I think. And that's sure. what this track's all about. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. Well, I guess Absolutely. we can move on. Is that all we got? Is that all you got, <laughs> oh, Steve, no. on that one? We have, uh, I, 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 have you guys said everything you want to say? Yes. I, yeah, I'm good. All right. Um, so, the way this track begins... Uh, we already talked about the, 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 the Chuck hammer kind of like the fade in and, um, the, the, it, it, right as it starts, you know, you're in for something special with Alomar and Fripp are kind of playing towards each other. I, I think, um, there it's, 
David Bowie said that he kind of wanted them to duel. And I think they kind of do. It definitely is a showpiece for Fripp because he, uh, Alomar is kind of the rhythm guitar in this album. He's the lead. And that, that's, that's there from the very start, I think. Um, but the, the, the way, the way, the way they get into it and the way that Bowie's vocals kind of waft in, he has a, deli- a delivery on this track where he almost sounds like a vampire. Uh, Eric, do you agree with me here? I could see that comparison too. Yeah. That's that, that, that it definitely, it, it's a little bit more. He hits some notes that he doesn't necessarily need to hit. And he kind of, uh, his registered fluctuates within like just one verse. Um, at the minute and five second mark, that's when the choir first kicks in. And the choir in the song is Tony Visconti, Lynn Maitland, and Chris Porter. And I think for this song, you might hear it over the years and just think, oh, it's a pretty good song. But once you notice what's going on with these background vocals, I think it takes on a whole new dimension. Um, you guys, does the choir, the background vocals jump out at you at all when you listen to it? Yeah, the, this song and Up the Hill Backwards, it, it, um, it's two times I've noticed that Bowie found his place in a, in a chorus as opposed to, you know, always having to stand out. Um, perfectly utilized, so. But in, in this case, this chorus, these background vocalists are not Bowie, but they're singing the same thing together. Oh, I, I see. And sometimes, no, I, I'm agreeing with you, but sometimes... Uh, sometimes they're singing with each other. Other times they're just doing vocalizations like some ooh-wah-oohs, kind of like 50s doo-wop stuff behind him. Um, that line that comes up next, the, the blue skies above, that one is when I first, when I'm listening to this song, really, even if it might be a track where the words are supposed to be biting, I think it has like a sense of longing to it that uh, might be intentional. Um, the line following that, the, you get chilly receptions everywhere you go. If you listen to that closely in the right channel, there is a wild, either Robert Fripp nonsense or Chuck hammer noodling. That sounds like a broken Atari. And that's going to come back at the end of the song. Um, at about a minute and a half in is when you get the first real Fripp soloing. And it sounds like he's going for, he's getting there's some rising action and you think he's going to get there, but he stops short and uh, it's not extremely technical. It almost sounds bluesy. And so then uh, it, it about a minute and 50 uh, you get that. So you said over shadow boxing line and it starts to like stomp with the, the the drums going with the vocals and they have like a, a cadence. And at this point, it's, it's, it's kind of pulsing more. It's got more of a, a, a driving rising action to the whole song. And then he goes into the, Oh, uh, a broken nose mongrel. Are you one of these new wave boys? And uh, that's where he might be talking about Gary Newman, which is kind of rude to call him broken nose, but I can kind of see it. Uh, the guy looks like a, uh, a pug. Um, the same old thing in a brand new drag. So he's definitely, really going after these kids that are basically just, you know, pretending they're Ziggy Stardust. Um, and while all this is happening, the, the pianos, they're really going for that. You know, we're recording the river next door. Um, 
Americana grand piano sound. Uh, and, and this goes into about the minute, two minute and 45 mark where the chorus syncs up with the verse and they have that David, what should I do? They wait for me in the hallways. I don't know, man. I don't know any hallways. And I think that lyric is genius. The just the, the way he uh, displays getting caught off guard, being asked a question about something like, Hey, what do I do when they're waiting for me in the hallways? And he says, oh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know about hallways. That's, that's preposterous. I think it's, that's, that's great. Um, Eric is a lyric person. How do you feel with the lyrics in this song? Uh, like I, like I was saying, it's uh, scathing and, and, and quite humorous. It's one of his more clever songs on the whole album. Um, I would say, yes, that's, that's a very clever line. Yeah, absolutely. Between that, they, you know, just as little like a broken nosed mo- mogul, uh, pretending it's a whiz kid world. <laughs> just thinking about like computer savvy, uh, performers. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the whiz kid world, uh, the millionaire is pretending they're in yeah, a whiz kid yeah. world. It's quite as, funny. Uh, it's quite funny. Uh, so that's, that all gets us to halfway through the song, three minutes in and the drums start building up. And that's where he really just goes, lets a teenage wildlife soar. And that's where fucking Fripp comes in and really starts noodling. And he doesn't, he doesn't quite noodle to the top of the mountain, but he noodles quite a bit. And you, you've got, you've got a Carlos Alomar going back and forth with him a little bit, but just, just a touch. They don't, they don't climax. If you will, they get, it gets back in even though you're, 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 you're really into it now, but you're, uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, this is like, uh, what, what the fuck staying in his tantric so sex. You don't get your explosions. Yeah. 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 And so about, about 30 seconds later, you've got, a. it, it all, it all kind of, it, it starts to, the opposite of rising action would be, uh, going down the hill action up the hill backwards action. <laughs> And, um, and, and he, and he starts talking about a wolf in a trap. And then at the, and then he says that whole, like, you know, you fall like a leaf from a tree in the, it all is just piano and drum. And he almost sounds caring. And then he says teenage wildlife again. And in about four minutes and 30 seconds in Robert Fripp goes crazy. Not too showy. It fits. He said, teenage wildlife. Oh, ho, ho, ho. and the guitars. You know what part I'm talking about here? You know what I'm saying? Ladies and gentlemen, Rozel. Yeah, <laughs> It really starts going, but it, like him and Carlos are going back and forth. And like, I can just picture, like, even though Robert Fripp fucking doesn't like jump around like Eddie Van Halen, he sounds like he's really getting into it. And him and Carlos start going back and forth. And uh, it's just, it like, I feel like the solo he's been building to this entire song, he finally unleashes with. And you think that you think there's a climax there. And then David Bowie has that great line about the fingerprints you proved you couldn't pass the test. And then he says, you know, that mission, I, I, I don't, it just, it continues. 
to have like three more climaxes and you think the song's done but then Louie shouts out those high pitched teenage wildlife at the end and <laughs> while that's going on Fripp's doing some bullshit where he sounds like the fucking guitar yeah. player from Botch, like a broken Atari in the background, if you're really paying attention. And Ooh, good reconnection. It's, I, I yeah. just, it's incredible. It's almost too much to deal with. And I feel like there's so many different segments and movements of the song that they all fit together into one cohesive song. And when my good friend Eric says, oh, it's a basic rock song, all right, whatever. But... At the same time, I don't mean that. I did not mean that disparagingly. I, I just meant and like I think it's much more. I meant like like it's balls to the wall. Like the other songs don't go. They don't go there. It is a rock song, and yes, it's a creative rock song with with plenty of uh, of special little moments. And uh, I, this song is great. Actually, when I saw him, he closed the show with. Well, this there song. you go. That makes me jealous. This was the closer. But I feel this like it, closer. Um, I feel like to take. I, like I said, it sounds like it's even when it's supposed to be biting, it sounds like it's, there's a sense of yearning and right. it does sound like a, almost a ballad. Not really. I don't know what it really is, but it manages to be otherworldly and also be of the earth at the same time to me. And I think that's a fucking magic trick. And uh, I think yeah. it's a very powerful track. And I think I've said enough. I appreciate everyone for having the patience to deal with me breaking this thing down. Like it's, you're listening to the fucking star Wars minute podcast. So thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I, like I, there's a fucking at the, at the six minute mark. There's a drum roll. Like you wouldn't believe as well. So, you know, was when I, 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 cause I had to pull this up on, on set list just cause I couldn't remember. Obviously I wasn't as big of a Bowie fan back then. So he closed with this song, but the song before it that went into this was night flights. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> So there you go. No, but really when I'm talking about how this album was being recorded right next door to the river by Bruce Springsteen, this song, the, the grand pianos towards the end of it really, for me call out that they were, uh, they were trading notes back and forth. Um, I know that when you listen to David Bowie, you don't typically are going to think of, uh, you know, fucking glory days or something, but, uh, in this one, there's definitely some of that. Uh, yeah, I think Mark said earlier, maybe the born to runness is in there. Um, two covers I want to call out for this track. One, this is hilarious. I found that some band called Ash did a cover of it, and I never heard of this band before. They're a pop punk band, and then when I looked at their album covers, I recognized one of them just from when I worked at the record store because it was always on the end caps. You guys remember seeing CDs by a band called Ash? I mean, probably. Uh, <laughs> I can only if you imagine. look at the album cover, you'll recognize it. It's uh, it's all right. It looks uh, it looks like uh, if you ever heard of the video game or comic book Scud the Disposable Assassin, that's what it looks like. Um, the other cover is by friends of the show, believe it or not, Deadsy. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I did listen to that one. That was good. That was really uh, good. Deadsy, of, uh, of a place in my heart, a strange band that I always considered. They should have gotten the notoriety that Orgy got, but instead Orgy got it. Um, uh, much better band. Much than better Orgy. band than Orgy. They, they're actually quality musicians. I think the, those two bands uh, share a similar vocal quality to like Marilyn Manson. Uh, but they, but you know, these were two bands, and Orgy was 
ridiculous, <laughs> but yeah, Dedzy's solid. Dedzy's yeah, absolutely Dedzy solid always band. they would have sludgy guitars and they would have synths upon synths, and I think that sometimes they were written off because the lead singer, the founder of the band, main guy, uh, Elijah Blue, is what he calls himself, is the son of Greg Allman and Cher. Um, but yeah, they get they they had one major label release on the grammar or I'm sorry. Elementary Records, which was Jonathan Davis's uh, Vandy label, which didn't last long. Uh, Mark, did you ever listen uh, to them at all? Desi was not on my radar. Uh, I've heard a few uh, songs, um, but even with the height of uh, really trying to be involved with anything re- somewhat related to corn in my, uh, uh, I guess, high school days, I was already starting to really fall out of that orbit of things i know that you were a fan and you were always trying to show me a few things um but it's not like i um turned my nose up at them i just was moving on to other things and it just seemed kind of even though uh what what's the guy's name because his his dad is Cher and dwayne allman right yeah that's what, uh, no his dad is yeah greg allman greg allman shares yes. yes yes um, so obviously he comes from, you know, some really good uh, musical royalty and genes there, but it just didn't take with me. Yeah. So, well, you know, you probably, I probably burned you out back then uh, making you listen to video drone. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, what was the other fucking band that was on that label? I don't know. Jonathan Davis was a ridiculous human being that signed ridiculous bands to his label. Um, yeah. So they were like the, they were like the twisted. Exactly. Of, uh, <laughs> of course. <There> you <laughs> <Okay. go. laughs> um, anyhow though, they, uh, <laughs> allegedly they have a new album coming out this year. We'll see, but their version of a uh, teenage wildlife I like. And also, uh, they have a version of just like heaven, which I, uh, subscribe to. And their big hit was their <laughs> big hit. Their only thing close to a hit was their cover of Tom Sawyer. So, Anyways, which is also yes, great. thank you everyone for listening to us talk about teenage wildlife. Yeah. I'm going to get a cup of water and uh, let Eric scream like a baby. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. So let's go into track seven, scream like a baby. Baby could have fit perfectly 
in the last half of Diamond Dogs. I can see it that. It is a yeah. It's 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 very much a look. It's a it's a it's a horror story of a uh, of a culture crushed under the jackboot of a fascist government. But it's not too far from reality. Unfortunately, in 1980, and unfortunately in 2019, um, David Bowie has created a song here that is. So uh, harsh, but impactful. I this this song, the, my number one song was always going to be a tie between Scary Monsters and Ashes to Ashes because there's just you can't beat perfection. But this was going to be my number two because the story that it tells is so powerful. And unfortunately, I it's it's both ahead of its time and of its time. And that's too bad because what it is is a story about a a gay couple where their their love is is illegal, um, not unlike the reality in Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, um, and uh, they get captured and they are forced to go through conversion therapy. And um, I really hope if this podcast exists for generations down the line to listen to again, they'll say, what the hell is conversion therapy? And they'll, 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 and they'll look it up and they'll say, holy hell, the vice president in 2019 provided funds to support conversion therapy, believes in it, which is forcing homosexuals to believe that they are actually straight through uh, essentially child abuse and, and uh, brainwashing. And, um, we get a song about that and it's uh it uh it's very dramatic there's big bass just drops like huge bass drops during the verse as you start setting up the story um essentially american concentration camps uh which also uh, I, I hate to editorialize yeah. but i will i hope that if our podcast is floating uh along planet nebulon and some aliens listen to it that they learned that concentration camps were something that uh, this fucking country flirted with and then quickly abandoned in the year 2019 because, well, that's where we're basically sticking uh, Hispanics now. And uh, who knows right. who will be next? You know, maybe it will be the gays next. Right. But uh, yeah. Ah! yeah. Well, it's I terrible. mean, uh, the Japanese are holding on line one yeah. to talk about their internment camps. It's not like <laughs> exactly. we haven't been there before. We're not as good as we all want to think we are. Yeah, Anyhow, listen right. to last week's episode. <laughs> yeah. But this this uh this song uh it gets me. I think it's really good. There's some harsh language, especially when he drops the FAG bomb, but um he's doing it from a perspective of, of of people oppressed, and the way he delivers that line is something that like somebody who's been called that a thousand times uh uh could probably repeat in that same tone. Um it was originally written as a song called I Am a Laser uh, for um, his girlfriend, Ava Cherry's band, The Astronauts. They were they dated? And they were together? Okay. Yes. And he, he retooled it for this song. Um, 
And uh, funny enough, apparently it uh, it is the return of the same descending chord progression of the Laughing Gnome. <laughs> but anyways, the the, the guys, bass drops guys, during the verse. Know the, you know where the Diamond Dice is going to go tonight. <laughs> yeah, and for yeah, it's just it's just lining up. Okay. Did you listen to the? I listened uh, to it. Did you listen to Eye and the Laser? Uh, no, I did not. It, it's all right. I, I can just say that the way. Uh, the scream like a baby. She says, I am a laser. So that's how that lines up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just think it's a super powerful song. Um, it's as relevant today as it was back then, unfortunately. And um, yeah, those courses really get me, get me hooked in. So, so my, I've told you what my tide for ones are, but this was always going to be my number two. This 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 song this song uh, means a lot to me. I love a good protest song that's done that's done well and that sets up the 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 horror of living in it, of living in that life. So it's a great song. That's all I got. I uh, I don't rank it as high on my list as what you do, but I, I do really like this song. It's uh, definitely has a lot of that aggression that you. Got in the uh, first track of "It's No Game" Part One. Um, the the drums are just pounding, mm-hmm. um, just booming on this song. Um, I mean, I think you've really kind of covered this song backwards and forwards, and uh, I do enjoy it um, for its aggression and for its message. Um, and the narration of it is certainly uh, there is a central character named Sam or Sam was part of this whole conversion therapy that you're talking about. Um, I never really looked at it in that way. And I could absolutely agree with you that it would find a nice little home on diamond dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I love the part where at the very end where he's like, I will fit into society. He can't say society. It's like just yeah, showing we, like, we, I love his little performance arc there. Breaks yeah. down. Yeah. They yeah. do some cool vocal tricks on this track. There's that, there's a society. I made a note of that. He can't say it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say it because that, cause, cause conversion therapy is never really going to work. Right. Like there's a lot to be said for brainwashing, but it never really does what they want it to do. Um, you know, gay people are going to gay. They're just going to do it. And that's, that's beautiful. But, uh, um, there's that. Yeah. And then the, uh, the reverse, the, uh, the reverse vocals that happen during mm-hmm. the breakdown is amazing. Yeah. You've covered everything I was going to say. Uh, all I've got left to say is they never played this live. And, um, the way it begins, it sounds like a tough guy, motherfucker standing up against like a bunch of other people that it does, you know, it's, yeah. it sounds like he puts his foot in the ground and he's got, his army behind him and he's ready to take you on. Um, good track. And the next track is the, uh, only cover on the album. Now there have been some tracks that were repurposed old versions, but, uh, it's kingdom come a cover by Tom Verlaine from television. And here's the sound of it.
Kingdom Come. So as Steve mentioned before the sample drop, it was written by Tom Verlaine. Um, it, it was suggested by Carlos Alomar um, to cover this song, uh, which would be the first cover on a Bowie record since Station to Station. Yeah, I find that I find that funny that he suggested. Of course, the guy that covered that, that's all, hey, let's cover a television song. Who's a band that I always mix up with Wire? Yeah, um, fair enough. The fuck Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, they they are a little di- <laughs> they are a little different though. But uh, they are yeah same same era and uh, both great bands. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not just saying anything disparaging. I just think it it's funny that Carlos Alomar said, "Let's cover this guy's band." He doesn't know who Tom <laughs> or I'm sorry, he doesn't know who Bruce Springsteen <laughs> yeah. is. But uh, anyhow, Mark, Television's first record is uh, quite something. It's very good. Um, But Bowie even asked Tom Verlaine to even play guitar on this song. Uh, But things apparently uh, didn't work out. And uh, uh, so Robert Fripp uh, does the lead guitar work, uh, kind of just really keeping not so much... uh, He's he's on a little bit of a leash on this song, I think. I guess Tom Verlaine showed up and he was just kind of like not feeling it. Like he just kind of showed up and just he just noodled a little bit and then just like, ah, fuck it. Just put somebody else on there. Yeah, the way that the impression I get is from uh, Visconti. And by the way, uh, we need to do a special on Tony Visconti's fucking book he wrote. Um, he said that Verlaine just kind of showed up and like played with all the amplifiers and toys and guitars they had. And then just kind of left and they didn't have anything usable. Um, it's like a less sad version of when Sid Barrett showed up when they were uh, Pink Floyd was recording. Yeah. Wish you were here. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Tom Verlaine version of this song, is it on a solo work or is it on yes. a television no, it's, 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 okay. it's a solo, it a solo work. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is a lot more um, downbeat than what you see here. Um. David Bowie's version is a little more uh, in that style of David Bowie where it's, uh, you know, plaintive at the same time and kind of aching, but not so much like emo, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. I really do enjoy this this song. Um, I had no idea that this was a cover song, even by listening to this album over and over and over again. It just sounds like it could be easily just a David Bowie, uh, you know, cut. Um, some of my favorite lyrics are, well, I'll be breaking these rocks and cutting this hay. Yes, I'll breaking these rocks. What's my price to pay? Um, it, it's one of the songs that I kind of always have to be reminded of how, how good it is. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not one that I seek out when I just go to look at individual tracks, but if it comes up individually on shuffle, I never, never skip it. Um, but it, I think it really hangs with the rest of the songs on the album. Yeah, I think he does a very um uh, like I said, he does a lot of vocal tricks in this album. He does kind of a doo-wop approach, I think, to uh this yeah. this track. Um the the, the the I won't be breaking these rocks. I, I just uh and also the uh, I don't remember exactly the words, but the way he's all I, I apologize, listeners, but the way he, the way the way he kind of goes all over there reminds me of like a, a doo-wop trio. Yeah. Um, a lot of vocalizations, you know, just yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe even too maybe more than he needs to do, but I think it spices things up a bit. Yeah. So. Um, I 
uh, I enjoy the song. I like the original better. And I, I, I never, I'm not going to act like I'm a big Tom Verlaine fan. I obviously listen to some television and I checked out the original after I heard this. And it, it's a little bit more cut and dry. Um, this is my least favorite song on the album, but I still listen to it all the way through every time. Um, it's not a bad song in any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, during the verses, Bowie is going like hog wild on dramatic uh, presentation of it when the original is a little bit more like yeah. just just basic singing and which and in this case is a better choice in, in, as far as it goes for me I have a hard time following the melody during the verses because Bowie is all over the place but then when it gets to that breakdown um, I've been breaking these rocks the doo-wop part you're thinking I'm thinking of Bowie's version of reggae which he fully ah. discovered in the song Chili Down on the Labyrinth soundtrack when those fireheads are popping their heads off and tossing them around that I, I, I can't help it. I see a direct through line from that part of the song to Labyrinth, that part of Labyrinth. It's it's the same kind of like reggae breakdown kind of thing. Um, well, I can't I can't wait for our Labyrinth episode to discuss that. But I can tell you that uh, I sure heard a lot of his version of reggae for his UB40 influences on Black Tie White Noise. So uh, what are you going to yeah. do? Um, but uh, this song, uh, if you look at the lyrics, it could be pretty much attributed to any insurmountable um like feeling like you're 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 locked up and chained up in some sort of insurmountable prison and at this time in Bowie's life it could have been a marriage it could have been drug addiction it could have been uh the recording industry could have been any of that but it's it's vague enough but also poetic enough to be just pretty great lyrics um i do enjoy this song a lot um but Bowie just kind of goes a little bit too much uh, over the top in the verses to the point where it loses the melody. And it's the only, I'm just honestly, I'm looking for things to ding. It's a fine song. It's, it, but this is the low totem pole song for me for this album. I think that, uh, I think as far as what he's fighting, I have, I am in no means the person that has every year of his life mapped down, but I think in his mid thirties at this point, uh, with this kid and recently divorced and everything. I, I don't think the drug addictions was a problem anymore. Uh, not that he wasn't battling other demons. I think more of the demons he's battling is trying to deal with the expectations of him musically or uh, the scenes he created in his wake, if you will. But uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I get the impression a lot of this is, is from a, a more, not sober point of view, but, uh, less clouded. I don't know, but anyway. right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why I wasn't exactly sure what his prison was, what Bowie's prison was to pick this song, but it's a, it's one of his prisons. So that's all I got to say on that one. All right. Well, let's move on to the next track, which is because you're young. So born, torn, and resigned She can't talk anymore 
All right. Because you're young. This is, in my opinion, the weakest track on the album, but it is still incredibly strong. And it also, again, I apologize, everyone, reminds me a lot of something Bruce Springsteen might write. Uh, it's, you know, any song. I, I don't know if, it, if, if lyrically we can get to the, the, the sonically in a minute. But lyrically, it sounds almost like he's trying to tell a younger person what to expect. And is he talking to Duncan, his son? I'm not sure. Or is he talking to uh, those new wave kids that are still finding their shit out? Maybe. But it definitely seems to be a song about trying to guide someone in a certain direction to me. Um, It's a good song. It's, It's still... The worst song on this record is still the best song on somebody else's album. Um, Mark, how do you feel? Um, and I've read that as well, that a lot of uh, uh, critics, I mean, even though I, I actually am okay with this song, um, it is not one of the standout tracks. This and Kingdom Come sometimes uh, kind of blend together for me, even though they sound different. But yeah, there, there's kind of a... There's kind of a lull here, but the lull no. isn't bad. It's just that everything else is so fucking awesome. I do know? like that guitar riff from Pete Townsend. I'm not going to lie. It's catchy. It's hooky. Um, one thing that always kind of strikes me is during the choruses, um, the synthesizer, I think that's Andy Clark playing it. Um, it really reminds me of that Main Street electrical parade sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you're right. Uh, it's a relationship between two young people from an older, more cynical man's perspective. Um, and that obviously could connect to the whole new romantic fashion and new wave music in that he's going to tell these young whippersnappers what to kind of expect. Um, some fun facts about the whole Pete Townsend uh, appearance that apparently he showed up in a pretty bad, foul, laconic mood uh, as v- Tony Visconti recalled, he drank some red wine. Um, and uh, apparently when Tony even offered him a choice of uh, bottles of wine, he said, there's no such thing as white wine. Um, so he seems like a fun guy. Um, <laughs> so shades of Paul Giamatti right. sideways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, Pete Townsend asked uh, what he wanted them him to do on the track. And I guess David looked at, uh, uh, Tony Visconti was puzzling. You said chords and then Townsend asked what kind of chords? Um, I think both David and I were a little afraid to state the obvious, but I finally offered, uh, Pete Townsend chords and then Townsend shrugged. Oh, windmills and did a perfect windmill on his guitar. So that's right. The classic, uh, the classic, uh, uh you know, you know what, the, the weird thing is, is like, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I, I didn't know Pete Townsend was on this album until I owned this album for like a Same. decade. And then the only time it sounds like Pete Townsend is that if you listen to it very closely, as it fades out, there's some guitar heroics going on. But for the most of it, it just sounds like a session right. musician to me. I think, um, I think, special special. About it. I think the who <laughs> would fall into my negative basic description on on their worst tracks but i think they have a lot of great tracks um uh they were they were doing some really just in your face simple rock and roll uh when there wasn't a lot of that and uh i actually respect the hell out of the uh, a lot of who songs um but they also like have limitations and uh 
the and, and they have a lot of low points as well. Um, but I thought I th- this song I find yeah I, I agree with Mark I, I you know and 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 Steve you too like his little riffing at the beginning is it's the opposite of Fripp. It's everything you'd expect somebody to play in the song. And it just, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the hook just gets you right away, right off, right off, right off the. That's a good hook. That. And then the bass line's fucking awesome. Like the bass line, when it gets in, it goes do, 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 do. There's almost like a double kick drum going on. That's all good. Um, it's just all of the pieces don't equal a no. whole that make me it is, want to write it, a letter. It's, 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 it's rather forgettable. So, um, I think it goes down easier than uh, Kingdom Come, which is the only reason why it's not uh, lower than that on my scale. But it's it's I think they're 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 pretty close. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to interpret it, but I think looking at it either as a older person in a relationship with a younger, so like a younger person. Um, and you know, you know, we should admit that Bowie did have a penchant for younger, younger ladies during this time as, uh, a lot of rock stars did in this whole like groupie age, but, uh, that doesn't necessarily make it okay. I feel like, I feel like that was more, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any data on it, but my gut feeling is that those, um, interactions were more during the glam days. It's probably true. And not necessarily now, but he might be reflecting on that, but it's just kind of like, I know how this is going to end. You're going to find somebody else who's younger. And, uh, um, it's, it's a song about a doomed relationship. So either he's just old guy watching a, a, a young couple and just being like, Oh yeah, I give it six months. <laughs> kind of, kind of thing or he's the older guy in a in a relationship and he knows he knows where it's going to go and it's not going to go well um well you know it's it's funny like he was in his early to mid 30s right and by rock star standards that might as well be sure. 60 and but i know we're all pushing 40 and i feel like when i talk to somebody in their mid 20s i'm like you have no idea how unimportant the shit you think is important is and the stuff that should be important you don't think is right. important at all um, so I, I could definitely, I think that's what that song. I do love the repeating about. motif of a million dreams, a million scars, just knowing that like for every hope for the future, it's also like, you know, the, uh, aftermath of a fight <laughs> in, in a relationship, um, uh, psychodelicate girl come out to play. That's a very, that's recalling the character, whoever he's singing about in uh scary monsters. Um, okay. uh, anyways, um, I, the lyrics in this song, I do think are, 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 are pretty interesting, even if they're, they're, uh, they're a little, they're a little cold and, and, and removed. Um, but I, I kind of enjoy this song. It's a very simple, it's it's the most simple song on this album. I do love, I do love the, uh, uh, the keyboard slash organ. The organ goes nuts on this, this whole song. Um, Yeah. It sounds, it's got, it, it, you know, back to the Springsteen thing is it sounds like a, a Coney Island type, uh, organ. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I would, I would, I would love to see a, just a, a documentary filmed at the time between these two albums being recorded at once. I mean, have you guys, have you guys listened to the river all the way through? Yeah. It's been a while for me, but yes. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, long, long enough where I couldn't quote anything, but it is. It's great. not my favorite Springsteen album. It's a good one, but it's not mm-hmm. my favorite. It shouldn't, and, and, and it shouldn't be your favorite, yeah. but it is good. It's a little yeah. bloated. Uh, fucking Springsteen never met an editor that he would give the time of day to. Um, anyhow, so this all gets us back to It's No Game Part 2. Let's hear a clip. Silhouettes and shadows. Watch the revolution. No more. Three steps to heaven. Just walkie-talkie Heaven or heart Just big heads and drums Full speed and pagan And it's no game Yes, it's no game. Part two, taking us back to where everything started. Eric, how do you feel about it's no game? Part two. Uh, I do prefer this to the opening track, but not in any other way other than I can that that this is more of a fully fleshed out song. The opening track is f- totally effective for what it's trying to do. Um. But this one, there's more, I mean, he just sings more lyrics and you kind of know what's going on a little bit more, but it's also cleaner and more resigned. So the, there's a little less passion to it, but, um, but it's a great, it's a great way to end the album. You kind of get the full story here. And we had talked a little bit about what it was about, um, which was the, uh, just kind of playing on the the revolution song as a fad, as a pop song, and saying no, it's actually no game. It's kind of scary, and and you know, and then we 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 talked about the lyrics a little bit. Um, he's barred from the event, and he doesn't understand the situation. Uh, documentaries on refugees, uh, couples against the target, was basically like what you thought was a was a news broadcast turned out to be propaganda, make turn, trying to turn people against refugees, which we're seeing right now. Uh, if you turn on Fox news on any given day. Um, but, uh, I do like the whole, what you brought up Steve earlier to be insulted by these fascists. It's so degrading. I think he did feel an obligation to, uh, stand up against that based on his unfortunate, uh, what do we call it? Uh, uh, performance art <laughs> from the station to station era, the, uh, the, the mm-hmm. thin white Duke era. Um, and, and, and uh, be basically creating a fascist character uh, uh, to satire, um, you know, something, but uh, to basically create a, he created the thin white Duke to basically like make Americans uncomfortable. Uh, but in doing that, he kind of promoted fascism even if it was a joke and now he, he had to, he had to address well, yeah, it. I mean, it's like, point. it's like it, if you were to um, look at so many of these, I mean, the world is a fucking hellscape. And if you look at many of these, yeah, I hate to bring it up. 
goddamn Twitter influencers, for lack of a better term. So many of them start out as a oh, satirical, uh, biting, sarcastic account about, you know, leftist views. And then it turns out, oh, no, wait, all these people basically are Nazis and that what started out as a joke, they eventually right. tell you how they really feel. And I feel like with this, he was like, fuck, man, you know, I was just trying to make a point. And uh, now I feel like the guy that created the fucking Pepe the Frog. <laughs> oh, that's you know? a sad story um, in comics, right? He definitely, yeah. yes, but he did definitely got away from right. him. And I think you see that here. Um, yeah, and I, I just, I feel like how the album starts off with the very manic avant-garde version of this track and ends with the more reflective resigned version is absolutely yeah. perfect. And the first time I, first time I heard it, I was so excited when I realized it's like, Oh wait, this is the first song again, but totally different, but not too different. I it, thought it, it was genius. I, I love yeah. it. It's such, it's, it's, it's such a good, like yeah. an album cycle. Like I, this album is of a piece. You could listen to just this album if you were to pick one David Bowie album and listen to it, if you just pick this one, you go on so many adventures, but it also is one little perfect capsule that has a beginning and an end. And also like Antichrist Superstar or the Dark Tower, it cycles itself. The beginning is the end is yeah. the beginning. I love it. Mark. Um, I, I do prefer a little bit of the uh, angstiness of the first part of It's No Game. But I uh, I have zero problems with this one of it being more calmer, uh, more com- con- contemplative. Um, the lyrics are the same. They obviously took out the uh, Japanese translation interludes, but it's fine. It's a good way to end the record, as Steve said, um, with the album starting with the tape being started. This one ends with the tape loop um, getting finished. So it's a good little, little way to, uh, close it out. Steve, I forgot to mention this when we talked about part one, but it reminds me of, remember that, um, really good Blackheart procession, uh, split series. Remember there was that, there were the, the EPs that, what was it called? It was the, in the fish tank, the fish tank split series. And that one started with a French, French vocalist. Yeah, yeah, that would speak over yeah. his singing. But anyways, good similar effect. Yeah, they did uh, uh, what those were. Um, they were EPs, and they would pick two bands that weren't very uh, similar, and they would write songs together. Um, I can't remember who did Black Harbor Session do theirs with, but I also can't remember who ISIS did one with, but ISIS did one as well. Um, right. Friends of the show, that band ISIS. Um. You know, uh, one of the lyrics off this track that I love in the first one is the throw the blinds on yesterday or is it throw the blinds off yesterday? Either way, I love the way that that just the idea of just throwing blinds over the past. I think it's a great lyric. Um, there's a there's Davies drums really have a, a good stomp to some of them. Like they'll, he will finish a verse. And then it'll just oh, have like two uh, drum stops. Sorry, draw, draw really the blinds on yesterday. Normal. It's all so much scarier. There you so go. So like, it's like, it's like turning the lights on in a strip club. Yeah. Like and it's th- like the truth is laid out before you and it's, it's suddenly terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for that. Like it would go draw the blinds on yesterday. It's also scarier. And then boom, boom, there'd just be this drum pounding. It's fucking amazing. 
And uh, at the very end, his last delivery of in it's no game, he hits a, uh, just a note, a register that uh, really closes out the whole thing. So well, it's right up there with the best of his vocal work on uh, station to station. Uh, I love it. And uh, also the line camel yeah. shit on the walls. There you go. Good stuff. It's a great. All right. Well, that wraps up the album, scary monsters and super creeps. There is a few little supplemental material, yeah. uh, but before we get to that, you guys want to give it uh, your ranking. Oh, yes, this is uh, five out of Eric. five volts for me. Doesn't get much better than this. It's a perfect album. Like I said, I had to I had to dig for reasons to have my to dis- decide what my least favorite tracks were, and they're still good tracks. So it's five out of five. Uh, top songs being Ash Dash's "Scary Monsters" and "Scream Like a Baby." I'll give it a, I'll give it five out of five. No surprise here. If I, it's probably out of all the albums we've talked about next to the fragile, my favorite thing we've talked about. I can't get enough of it. I can never get tired of it. As soon as it's done, I want to listen to it again. Uh, when we did this podcast, I discovered things in it. I didn't know existed. And, um, it's, it's just a perfect, if you were just, like I said before, if you were to give like, Oh, I love David Bowie. And someone says, well, why do you love David Bowie? Oh, listen to this record. Every everything will be answered on yeah. this record. So uh it's just a, it's 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 great. I like I like to share it with people, I like to discuss it. And you can't Ashes to Ashes, a beautiful fucking weird song that goes in every direction at once. And I think the entire album does that. And uh, Teenage Wildlife is an all timer. So there you go. Um so I will also echo it being a five out of five. Um, I think that it's wild that David Bowie released 14 studio albums and he's like, that's pretty much, he's at the halfway point um, from his studio output uh, album output. And not to say everything is uh, downhill from here. Um, but there are definitely some valleys that uh, start to creep up after this one. Um, but I will say that this is the culmination of everything uh, for me on what David Bowie's all about. Big fan of this record. Um, and just like Steven said, every time I listen to it, it really does feel like I discover something new. Um, so it never gets old for me. So it's an all time classic. And I, I got to say that it's just, I, I, I feel that when people open up the history books of rock and roll, that the, the Dennis Davies, Carlos Alomar, uh, David Bowie and uh, George Murray grouping, they don't get enough goddamn respect, man. And, uh, this album is an exclamation point on that. There are moments on this record where they are just so locked into to what each other are doing. It's a, uh, it's fucking wonderful. And I think that last version of It's No Game, there's just a part on there where, you know, the bass line's cruising and Dennis Davies is stomping. And Carlos Alomar kind of just like puts a little bit more oomph into the guitar riff. And I'm glad that that's like the last time when they're all together, you get to hear that. It's uh, they were they were great. Uh, they need more respect. God damn it. So. All right. So let's talk about a few of the B-sides that were available off this well, one. Do, uh, they did one, a... a- Various, they did a various Alabama song, Alabama which is from a, a play, right? That that 
Uh, it was recorded in uh, David Bowie's version was recorded in 1978, so a little bit before right. um, Scary Monsters came out. Uh, this is an English version of a song written by Bertolt Brecht and translated from German by his close collaborator Elizabeth Hauptmann in 1925. Uh, it was set to music by Kurt Weill for the 1927 play Little Mahogany. Um, famously, it was covered by, obviously, The Doors, and to a lesser extent, I mean, uh, David Bowie, this cover, um, people know about it if you're kind of uh, perusing through his discography, but it's not as recognizable as the one no, from The, the doors. doors. And The Doors one is better. Um, yeah. Yes, this, this, this version fucking, I love The, I, I, I love the Doors, and their version I'll tolerate. This version of it, fucking, uh, you can tell by how many times I've said the F word. Yeah, exhausted. Yeah. I basically put it in bold in my in my notes. I don't like cabaret music, and so I do not like <laughs> right. this version. No, it's it's no good. And and yeah. apparently, I, I, but, when we talk about let's dance, we have to talk about the uh, the EP that he made, which was all which is like five more songs of this guy's music. Um, oh god! Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I I just recently discovered that ball. Yeah, B- I don't know. A- if I'm yeah, B- brawl. B r a a l. No, I think it's oh, just B a a l. Yeah. So yeah. that there's a whole EP yeah. of this kind of stuff to to explore, and um, yeah, it's it, it's no good. It's it's dizzying, and um, anything that kind of resembles catchy dramatics from the doors version it's just dramatics and on this one and um yeah not a fan so not a fan that's that all right um yeah i I do have to say though that uh so as i mentioned before i've been on the road more for work and i have a lot of meetings for work and i've been on the road for work having meetings for work using my phone from work using go to meeting and my phone also is what I'm listening to music through. And if I'm driving a lot, I'm listening to music. Anyhow, not once, but thrice this week was I trying to have a conference call when fucking Alabama song blasted <laughs> into the call. So, uh, nice. yeah, uh, that, that, that weird bit of uh, my coworkers must think I'm really don't, into you don't know, ask German uh, yeah, yeah. theatrical music. It's just, it's such nonsense. No, it's much more suited to uh, Ray Manzarek and uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, The only, I think the only one. But the B, the B, the B, the B side of that though. No, the B side to up the hill backwards. Yeah. Because up the, up the hill backwards, uh, I married, I married up. My wife has the vinyl single of up the hill backwards and the B side is crystal Japan. So I got to listen to it on vinyl. Sounded lovely, but if you have the New Career in a New Town box set, it's on there as well. Um, we already discussed that when we discussed A Warm Place in our uh, Downward Spiral conversation. And there's a great interview with Trent Reznor admitting to Bowie that he completely accidentally, subconsciously stole at least a part of the melody from Crystal Japan. Um, it's a beautiful little uh, almost ambient uh synth riff um the story behind it is very reminiscent of lost in translation you know what do you guys want to pick up from there what 
Yeah, I mean, so Lost in Translation, Sophia, uh, Sophia Coppola film with Bill Murray uh, about a celebrity that went over to Japan to uh, continue his career in any shape and form, uh, does some commercial work, and Crystal Japan was this promotional video was really a commercial for a, uh, I think it was a beverage um, for the Crystal June Rock. I, I'm mispronouncing was it a sake? that. I know that. Was it a sake or something yeah. like that? And it ends with Bowie pretty much holding a glass of um, this beverage, kind of awkwardly by his face. Because he plays um, the song a little bit, and also right? this song he plays was a, the song a little bit, and then he holds up the yeah. sake. Yeah, I guess back back yeah. in the day, you could be a respected musician, but you would do these foreign advertisements because you knew if you did an American one, your fans would be like, "Oh, you're a sellout." But if you could, if you did like, out. yeah, if you did a if you did it overseas, then nobody would see it until the YouTube era. Now we all yeah. know. It would have been interesting if it was originally intended to be the closing track for Scary Monsters. Right. Um, it's rumored, it yeah, it's rumored there, to be but... have been considered for that. But it's fine that it wasn't. Um, I think how it ended was perfect by it closing the loop. Um, and it really doesn't really have any place on there. It more belongs on something from the Berlin trilogy. Um, so I do like the fact that it's a rather a B-side oddity. I mean, it's it's a great instrumental. I, this is uh, the only supplemental uh, material from this era that I actually connect. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And I can actually see it on, on the album working out just fine, but I, 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 yeah. I, I love digging for it too. It's, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous little instrumental. It's wonderful. No, it definitely, it sounds definitely like it belongs on low. Um, I think, yeah, it's a great song and it sounds a hell of a lot like a warm place, which is fine. Um, I, 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 I don't have much more to say besides the fact that if you've never listened to it, please seek and it listen out. to it. I in think you'll be field. pleasantly yeah. surprised with it. Yeah. <laughs> besides, yes. Back, back to work. Uh, this week I listened, I, I was driving through a cornfield and it was playing. I was like, Oh, this is, yeah. this is perfect. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that vodka right. was right. filtered through corn. Who knows? So very quickly, um, I'll touch on the fact that Space Oddity was re-recorded in 1979, um, and it essentially just kind of strips it down to just piano, bass, and drums, which was apparently trying to mirror John Lennon's instrumentation uh, from uh, the 1970 album Plastic Ono Band. Uh, Bowie really wanted to produce a really big replica to that song Mother, where it's just the bass and the drum locked in brutal unison. Um, and the music video that they reshot, it certainly had elements from Ashes to Ashes, um, where he's playing the guitar in a padded room. Uh, I think this, for me, I know that Steve actually said that he preferred it. This one tends to be a little bit more of a slog. It doesn't have that drive and that psychedelica that uh, I connected with. Um, and then the other one, I know I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, they also re-recorded a new version in 1979 of Panic in Detroit. Um, it was supposed to be recorded for the Kenny Everett's New Year's Eve show that would feature the de- 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 oh my gosh the debut of um, the re-recording of Space Oddity, but this version was not broadcast. 
And that was the uh, the Christmas special or New Year's Eve show or holiday special that uh, David Bowie told huh. Gary Newman to get the fuck out of the building for. So yeah. There you go. Oh. Um, you know, you know what's funny is that Gary Newman never got over that. By the way, uh, David Bowie never came around and said Gary Newman's all right, and Gary Newman never got uh, over uh, David Bowie telling him he's a uh, a broken nose mongrel. Yeah. So, and then the last ah, little piece. It was a you bro- guys <laughs> sorry, it was a broken nosed mogul, but I love mongrel. That's the, the yeah. <laughs> Either way, yeah. <laughs> And the last thing was uh, David Bowie appeared off of Iggy Pop's album, 19, uh, 1980 album, Soldier. Um, they were work, uh, so he had a song called Play It Safe, um, where not only David Bowie was on the track with Iggy Pop, but uh, members of Simple Minds. Did you guys hear that oh, one? Oh, shit. No, I missed that. All right. Um, nothing really to uh, write home about. I don't really uh, care for it. Um, not much backstory, just, uh, I believe with an interview, um, someone from Simple Mind said in the Welsh countryside, there's not a lot of stuff you can get up to, but there was plenty of cans of beer. And at the end of the night, everyone had the munchies. I remember David Bowie eating a lot of cheese and thinking, I didn't think David Bowie would be a cheese eating guy. I don't know why I thought of that, but he was enjoying himself. Um, it's not a great song. It's, uh, it's okay. Um, but yeah, David Bowie, you could hear him on the choruses. All right. He wanted to have like a football types type song, but that pretty much wraps it up. I mean, the only, um, supplemental material that I really enjoyed during this era was Crystal Great Japan. Song. And for those of us just listening to the podcast for the first time, you never know. You should really go back and listen to our episode about the downward spiral because I don't know if you ever heard of Nine Inch Nails, but they were a pretty good oh. band. So with that, I think it's time to roll the dice to see where Let's we're going do it. You next. Got the, you got the list up? Here it comes. I do. Okay. Now, hold on. I'm going to keep. It's probably not going to get better than this. Can we all just take a minute and appreciate that we got to listen to one of the best albums of all time for the last like three weeks and it didn't feel like homework? I mean, I just, as soon as this thing stopped, I started it over again. It was no problem. It was a uh, fucking yeah. beautiful. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative that we got to spend some time talking about this one tonight. And uh, recently Steve uh, accused me of fake dice rolling. So I'm going to take uh, photographic evidence of this. <laughs> <laughs> I did not accuse. That is horseshit. I did not. I just wanted, no, I I said that, but I was just okay. being paranoid. So let's hear it. We were just, you know, we we were just saying that Eric's trying to keep the band together sure. because after Black Tie White Noise, if we rolled right into oh, fucking Tim Machine yeah, Part it's Two, it's fair. Who knows what well, we would Looks like we're getting a nineteen it's, now. Yeah, no, see. go ahead. Let's see what it is. Here it comes. And I have. Oh my god! <laughs> it's nineteen. <laughs> Tin machine, tin machine, the zombies never pass. The guy that beats his baby up, the preachers and their ass. Tin machine, tin machine. 
<laughs> See, just like I said, 19, Tin Machine 2. Oh, God. We can't even, like, you know, at least with Tin Machine 1, we can talk about what was going on into the formation of whatever Tin Machine thought it was going to be. Uh, this is just this is just getting to the worst. Is 19 just two or is it just both of them bundled together? Don't try it. It's well, 18 is 10 machine and 19 it's, would be 10 machine yep. two. Ah, shit. Almost rather just do them together. Not two. You can't. No. So what, what year is that? What year is 10 machine? Two? Uh, no, I think it's like 91. Uh, all right, guys, one step forward, three steps back. We're we're Tim Machine Part Two. That's our next one. Oh, uh, down the hill forward. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh man, this is gonna be. I've never <laughs> listened to this song. I've never listened nope, to this album. This is gonna be uh, something. And uh, I think there's some every- stuff from this era. There may be some fun stuff uh, from this era that we can talk about, though. That's that other than this album. If we're going to try to like connect everything, I think that Reeves Gabriel definitely thought he was uh, Robert Fripp Jr. So maybe it is fitting that we do this next. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, I mean, so it's Reeves Gabriel's um, and David Bowie and then Soupy Sales's kids. Soupy Sales. What? Soupy Sales? You you never Uh, heard of Soupy Sales? It's a great name. Uh, Soupy Sales was a television comedian uh, that was in like the heyday of the golden age of television in the 1960s. Okay. Um, so yeah, this will be fucking great. <laughs> all right, we're all jacked. Oh, we're all, ja- you know, all jacked for the next episode, guys. Thanks for listening. This, this is gonna make uh, the Laughing Gnome look like uh, the White Album. <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> all right, so. <laughs> Thank you for listening to uh, our discussion on scary monsters as the diamond dice has pointed us in the direction of going to number 19, five albums removed from the pinnacle of his work. We're going to take a look at what happened when he went and decided to become part of a band called Tin Machine, not starting with the first album, but we're going to start with the second one. I just, Mark said 19 19 and I rolled 19. There's so many numbers available to humankind, and this is what happens to us. <laughs> well, gotta eat our vegetables. All right, so uh, join us next time when we talk about Tin Machine Two. And this has been Mark, Stephen, and Eric. Since they're so stunned that we're having to listen to this, I will not let. I will not let Tin Machine take any wind out of my sails. I am still jazzed from talking about scary monsters. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, yes, dear listeners, just do yourself a favor and listen to listen to Teenage Wildlife one more time and think about all the nice things we had to say about it before you listen to Tin Machine Part 2. My God. All right. We hope that we brought you closer to Pod. <laughs>